0: A few things in closing we would like to talk about. I would like to start with just a word of advice from Tofu Roshi. <laughs> <laughs> it's laugh already, he hasn't even said anything yet. <laughs> about how to uh, integrate the understanding of no self so that one is not dysfunctional in the world. Dear Toferoshi, I understand that a basic part of your teaching is to forget the self, but I'm a psychotherapist, and the self is the very thing that I work with. Sigh by sigh, tear by tear, fist by fist, and dream by dream, my clients rebuild their sense of self, and then you come creeping up behind them, and whack! You hit them on the back with a stick, and the fragile structure topples to the ground in a heap. In five heaps, I am told. (laughs) How do you reconcile this apparent contradiction between spiritual development and psychological health? Do you think we are working against each other? Jane. Dear Jane, you are right. We cannot forget the self until we have a strong self to forget. The work you do therefore prepares a person for the work I do, and for this I am grateful to you wherever you are. You need the dough, I bake it in the oven of the zendo. <laughs> that is why at our practice place Every new member must have a certificate of mental health (laughs) before being allowed to join. But even this is not always sufficient. For example, one of our members who forgot the self during a long session was completely unable to recall it, the self, when the session was over. Luckily, we knew his name and address (laughs) and were able to send him home in a taxi. He remained confused for some months, believing Bodhidharma to be the President of the United States. <laughs> Another student had a deep experience of no self or anatta during retreat, and when at the end she returned to the self, it was a self, all right, but it was the self of someone else. <laughs> when she asked herself in the final moments, Who am I? and who asks, who am I? She apparently noticed the name of Dan Flanagan <laughs> embroidered on the zabaton on which she sat. She unsuccessfully tried to enter his bag of skin, his house, his truck, but he, of course, was already there and there wasn't sufficient room for both of them, at least not in the bag of skin, nor did he particularly want her in his house or track. Only through the concentrated effort of Further Zazen was she able to forget Dan Flanagan's self and subsequently to re-enter her own. Since that time, we require everyone to wear tags around their necks in the Zendo with their name, address, occupation, pet peeve, and the name of the President of the United States. <laughs> In some cases, the last two items are the same. (laughs) Thus, our students... (laughs) Thus, our students can transcend the self during meditation in confidence that the answer to the question, who asks, who am I, and who asks, who asks, who am I, (laughs) is within easy reach. It is a little on the uh, subject of uh, fear of loss. Sometimes in leaving retreats there is some anxiety about what one will actually be able to take away, how much will be lost, um, how much you'll be able to integrate it. It's a, you know, it's a very natural anxiety. Many things do change when you leave a retreat. The levels of concentration which some of you have may not be lost. Therefore, those of you who have no levels of concentration are very fortunate in that you really have nothing to lose. (laughs) However... actually lose insights. They may indeed be somewhat harder to find at times, but you don't actually lose them. It is very amazing that this process of insight can be so subtle. Changes take place that are so subtle that you're not always aware that anything has changed until you go into situations where you expect to react in your normal, habitual way, and you find that it's not there. Sometimes you find that very organically you're able to set aside things in your life that have been troublesome or causes of confusion, but the insights come when we need them. It is the interesting thing about awareness is that you can't get rid of it. You're not always happy about that. But awareness can be, can become an ally, or it can also become a burden, depending on how we use it. It's very hard to turn back once you start on this path. It's very hard to lose your awareness, even though at times you may well wish to. You find that the awareness within ourselves, it is like a a reminder, it is like an understanding deeply embedded that even as we go into situations which may cause conflict, there is within us that voice that says, this is not necessary. But it's also important that awareness does not become a burden, that awareness is not used as a kind of censor of our experience, or as a judge of ourselves. And this unfortunately is rather a meditative neurosis that can develop, that one um, uses this awareness as a kind of evaluator of experience, that I shouldn't be doing this, I shouldn't be experiencing this, which of course has much to do with our expectations, much to do with our notions of our spiritual identity and who we should be. And it is really helpful to appreciate that this whole journey is an ongoing one, that our awareness enables us to make choices that are based on wisdom. Our awareness gives us options, one of the most powerful or the precious gifts, that we find in our lives is this gift of awareness. And it actually gives us options. We see that in so many situations, we have the options of extending judgment or criticism. We equally have the option of extending sensitivity and compassion. We have the option of pursuing gratification we learn too that we have the option of letting it go. And that gift of the awareness becomes the kind of foundation of our lives that allows us to grow through the vehicles of our own experience. Through the vehicles of the, the relationships, the work, the activities that we do in our lives. We've spoken quite a bit of compassion an awareness, I feel, empowers us to be in touch with our own inner compassion. It's not so much that compassion is some sort of state that we arrive at. And it's not either that we are only really going to be able to cultivate compassion if we work in service or in giving. Compassion is not so much in what we do, but in how we do it. We all have the opportunities to nurture compassion and to understand that every time we develop those opportunities, we contribute to healing both outwardly or inwardly. In our speech, though kind of very powerful vehicle of speech, our speech can be an act of compassion, of giving of serving. Our actions, they can contribute to conflict or to pain. They can contribute also to the end of pain. Sometimes it's hard, it is hard to develop compassion because there are times when we feel that our minds must dispense it, must determine who is worthy of compassion and who is not worthy of compassion, who is worthy of loving kindness, and who is not worthy. But I feel one of the deepest or most profound understandings we come to is that we need to go beyond that kind of dispensation, that compassion needs to be an integral foundation of our being, of our way of living. You know, when I practiced in the Mahayana tradition, you weren't allowed, I wasn't allowed to meditate for quite a long time. Instead, I had to do a great deal of reflection, because in the Mahayana tradition, you are asked to cultivate the right motivation, the right inspiration for your practice before you actually meditate. That comes later. And one of the reflections we, uh, well, I spent a long time on, was that in order to cultivate compassion, we were encouraged to to see on a more cosmic level, you know, not just on what our eyes and sense doors could perceive, but to try and look upon the universe in a much more cosmic way. And one of the reflections we did was to reflect on the possibility that in the grand scheme of life and death and rebirth, one believes in this or not, that it would be entirely possible that every living being may at one time have been my mother. Well, this wasn't so easy for Westerners. I remember when we were first given the teaching, one Westerner said, but Geshe, I don't even like my mother, (laughs) you know, which was, of course, rather unheard of, the Tibetan culture. But it is, although it seems very kind of an unreal idea, if you reflect on it a little, it does put a slightly different light upon your relationship to a mosquito. It does put a slightly different light upon your relationship to your neighbor or to someone you pass on the street who you don't know, who you see is suffering it can give a a quality of connectedness or encourage us And what is really necessary in this practice is to really get in touch with some deeper sense of connectedness that isn't so influenced by the artificial barriers and differences that seem to divide one person from another. But a more profound sense of connectedness can transform our relationship to life can transform to our inner relationship. Now in leaving this retreat, there are many opportunities for applying this practice. Every moment is an opportunity. Sometimes it seems to be very hard work to be conscious, but believe me it's much harder work not to be conscious. It seems to require a lot of effort to be aware but we pay a much higher price for not being aware. And where we see the effects very quickly when we are out of touch with that sense of being conscious, how we very quickly end up in states of reaction or tension. And in that area, I just want to look briefly also at this kind of cycle of erosion that many people find themselves going through on leaving retreats you know, that on the evening retreats they feel very inspired and motivated, sometimes filled with resolutions, um, but very inspired and motivated. And then for many people the experience is that as time goes on, that the inspiration is a little more diluted, they sit a little less, they find themselves a bit more tense, a bit more reactive, until finally come to that point again where one feels they hit the bottom, and you need to go and do a retreat again. Now, this is not an uncommon cycle. I do very much question its necessity. One area, of course, is of, of not being bound to that cycle. One area is the willingness, the wholehearted willingness to live in accord with our understanding. The whole hearted recognition that insight is only liberating if it is applied. You know, we are not dummies. We often know the causes of suffering in our lives. We don't even need to come on retreat to know the causes of suffering in our lives. We know it. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, it doesn't need great profound teachers to tell us the cause of conflict, the cause of tension, the cause of, of disconnection. We know this for ourselves. And somehow what happens in a retreat is we get a little closer to that willingness to actually live in accord with what we do understand to be true. It is often hard to apply insight because the application of our understanding does at times mean letting go of a little pleasure, a little security, a little safety, taking some risks. And yet I feel more and more we come to understand that it is only when we live in the spirit of freedom that we experience freedom. That it's only when we live in the spirit of integrity that we experience integrity. And only when we live in the spirit of peace do we actually experience peace. And there's simply no way, no way at all that the goals and the directions of this practice can be separated from the path. Simply no way. And the path is a moment-to-moment undertaking. It's a moment-to-moment challenge, not something that we travel only on a retreat. In a way, this is the honeymoon. And then we go to start the marriage. And that is where our work actually begins, the application of understanding. Now, there are a number of different ways, of course, of keeping that spirit of freedom and that spirit of of peace and compassion truly alive, one of them is in the area of nourishment. Those who have the greatest difficulty of course in in integrating the practice are those who feel most isolated and you know a number of you talked yesterday about being isolated, <coughs> being without community and it is hard, and so we must look for where nourishment can come from. One area nourishment comes from is regular sitting, and it might be that you sit outside and you find yourself doing nothing more than (coughs) planning your shopping list or, you know, kind of ordering your appointments for the day, and sometimes the feeling comes, so well, this is just a waste of time. I may as well go and do my shopping and sit here and plan it. But it's not always a waste of time. That stillness is, apart from anything else, it's something of a symbol to us. It reminds us. It's a ritual that actually reminds us of the value of silence, of connectedness, of peace, of wisdom. And we can't always evaluate the results of a sitting just by what happens within it. We don't know how much that sitting, that one sitting where we seem to waste our time, has to do with so much with being able to go out in our day and in our lives aware of our own possibilities of living with sensitivity and living with compassion. Another form of nourishment is listening to tapes, to talks. It can be reading, it can be taking time alone in nature, but remembering or reminding ourselves again and again of how significant it is, how fundamental it is to feel that sense of richness and completeness inwardly. Because when we lose that touch with that, then that's when we find our minds kind of rampaging through the world like a hungry beast, you know, trying to consume everything, trying to fill ourselves up. And it's such a tense way of living. Nourishment also comes through having contact with Kalyanamitta. In this practice, gurus aren't big at all, not into gurus. But there is, in the Buddhist tradition, this whole tradition of a mitra, which is a spiritual friend. And a spiritual friend doesn't have to be a teacher. It can be any relationship within our lives that we can rely upon for honesty, for openness, for some shared commitment to peace, to compassion, to understanding that we can go to, that we can actually turn to for support. And that relationship, too, is important. Many of you are very busy <clears throat> in your lives. You don't always have time to sit, you know, for long periods every day. Very few people actually have that blessing and that luxury. But there again, there isn't anything written that 45-minute sittings are holy. We made that up. Yeah. <laughs> It was never dispensed, you know. I mean, it just happens to be a goodly amount of time, you know. kind of breaks up the day nicely here. But there's nothing uh, inherently spiritual about it. If you don't have 45 minutes to not think, well, if I don't sit that long, it's a waste of time. Every time you can take 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes just to stop and be still. It is important, it is valuable, it is nourishing. And, uh, you know, I've come to really realize that this culture in many ways, uh, you know, you can find that it does support meditation. There's all these places to sit. You know, you can sit in waiting rooms. You can sit in your car while you're in the traffic jam. You know, you can... um, There's churches and synagogues, the doors open, they invite you to come in and be still and be quiet. There's restrooms in this culture. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful places here. And you know, it's not like India, you know. I mean, they're fantastic, luxurious little uh, sanctuaries. Everybody respects your quietness there. You know, nobody calls you out, disturbs you, says get out, you know, except if you have small children. (laughs) <laughs> and they don't respect even that. But there are many, many places to sit. In some ways, this practice is a practice of transformation. It's learning how to transform everything around us into a vehicle for greater sensitivity and greater compassion. Those moments of stillness are very, very important. Sometimes it's difficult to sit, you know, when you have much going on in your minds. when. There's much you may be avoiding, and yet those times when it's most difficult to sit is often the times when it is most important to sit. The times when it's most important actually to be still and to be aware. In activity, there are ways of approaching activity which all of us do approach that can cultivate greater mindfulness. In a day, We begin and end many things, and yet so often we just perceive sameness or continuity. And it's in perceiving sameness and continuity that we accumulate so much unfinished business, so many unfinished perceptions. It is really helpful to cultivate a very clear sense of transition between endings and beginnings. You know, not that, you know, not every time you, you kind of fold a towel you end before you begin another one. This gets too mechanical. But as you come to an end of one very specific ta- task, it may not be completed, but you are ending it. To take a moment, just a moment, a minute, to actually have a clear sense that this is finished. So that you can leave it and have a clear sense of a new beginning. To cultivate that awareness of transitions so much breaks up that sense of continuity, that perception of sameness. To be aware that this whole process of growth involves much more than inner change. That we do live in relationship to the world around us. We are affected by it just as we affect it. Sometimes radical outer change is called for. You would not anticipate or expect to put, um, to light a match in a storm and expect it to stay alight. Neither can we realistically anticipate that this whole light of sensitivity and awareness and the growth of wisdom can really stay alight in the midst of a lifestyle that simply contradicts it. You know, and if we live in a way which is entirely chaotic which is entirely devoted to distractedness or consumption, surely it will happen that we get sucked in by it and ensnared by it. And sometimes it means looking at the quality of our lives. This whole area of the kindergarten of wisdom. You know, there is a nursery school, which means understanding what it is in our lives within ourselves that contributes to clarity, to well-being, to peace. And also knowing what it is in our lives that contributes to conflict, to confusion, to disconnection. This is where we learn from our own stories and where we learn from our own lives. And if we can distinguish between those two, what does contribute to clarity and compassion, what does contribute to confusion, to disharmony, then our own path actually becomes very clear. We know what it is that we do need to let go of. We also know what it is that we do need to nurture and to develop. And to know that this path is a twofold path. That one path is the path of letting go. One the other side of the path is the path of development, and they are both belong together. They are joined together. To be aware It is helpful to be aware that our inner work, our practice, is not only to bring about the end of suffering within. It is to trust, deeply trust, that our practice contributes and can contribute to the end of suffering in the world around us. That our practice is not just for our own well-being, it is for the well being of all beings. To know that gives a different level of inspiration to our practice and to our path. It can give a different level of dedication. Mm-hmm.
1: Just a few things to add to what Christina has already said. It's very common, especially those of you who are doing a retreat for the first time, to go home and want to communicate to your families and your friends what what this experience was like for you and people may ask you questions or you may even feel more commonly compelled to tell them every detail of your sittings and your experiences and what this is all about and you may even get into some complexity of trying to describe not, no self or something like that. Many people have gone this route, and it doesn't usually go very far. It ends up giving your friends and family perhaps even a feeling of alarm at what you have gotten yourself involved with. There was a woman some years ago who came to a retreat from Canada, and she lived in a small town, and there was no... She had had a wonderful retreat, and she went back to her small town, and there was really no one for her to talk to. There was no one, she had no sangha, nobody who was interested in this kind of activity. And she wrote one of the teachers, and she lived with her parents at the time, and she wrote a letter to one of the teachers, and she described her experience of going back and trying to communicate something about the practice. And she ended up by saying that her parents didn't like her very much when she was a Buddhist, but they loved her when she was a Buddha. So I don't think it's what you say about the practice that carries the most communications. It's more what you are and the ways in which you can be with people without, um, with a spaciousness and a compassion and an understanding. That's what communicates. Another thing is that this practice increases our levels of sensitivity tremendously. You may have discovered that already yesterday in the talking. And I promise you, if we were to transport you all right now to 42nd Street in Manhattan, you would be amazed at how sensitive you actually are. It's a little hard to feel right here. But just uh, as a word of warning that when you do go back out there today, to take it slowly, to not try to meet the world's speed immediately. You'll find that things do seem very fast and that things might seem very noisy and busy. You're more sensitive than you realize. So take it easy today. Um, I find it very helpful to do physical Uh, to be in my body when I leave a retreat, to go for long walks, go for a bike ride, something that really helps to keep you in your body so you don't get too spun out. You may go through in the next week or so some dramatic mood, mood swings, just as you did when you first came into retreat. Not to be concerned about that, to know that it's rather normal and that as much as you have been as much time as you have spent here, you may need that amount of time when you're out in the world to really integrate and feel again a stability in yourself. So don't be alarmed if you go through some swings. The world is very sticky. It's very sticky out there. It's very easy to get lost. But one of the beauties, I feel, of this practice is it always offers us the opportunity to begin again. No matter how lost we get out there, or for how long, we can always begin again. There's always that opportunity presented to us. And it's in that moment of remembering where we are, what's happening, and beginning again, is the power that we have accumulated here, the power to begin again? Another word about intentions. Because the world is very strong in its attractions for us sometimes, very confusing, very. it's like a whirlwind out there. One of the things which can really help to keep us on course is some reflection on our intention, reflections on intentions or motivation, just as Christina was speaking about. Knowing what one's intentions are in any particular day or in any particular situation or in any particular conversation can be like a rudder in a boat in a storm. It can keep you on course. So some I find some active reflection on intentions very useful. One more word about simplicity. The other gift of this practice is the gift of simplicity at any one moment there's only one of six things happening and that's all we're required to keep track of in terms of awareness. There's hearing, there's seeing, there's tasting, there's smelling, there's sensations in the body and there's mental states, things going on in the minds. Six things. That's all there is and that's all that's required of us to be aware of. Now, it doesn't seem like that when things get really speeded up, but it's helpful to remember and cut through a lot of the complexity with that understanding of the simplicity of what is required from us. So, really, that's about all I had to say. Do you have any questions? I know that you had some time to talk yesterday and that might have brought up some perceptions or awareness or questions. George? Yes. An mm-hmm. Did any others find that to be true? Yes. Speedy, Speedy. yes. Drunk. Huh? Drunk, Drunk. Yes. Tired, yes. Right. I also noticed after dinner the dining room was completely different scene. The chairs were all out, no one pushed the chair. (laughs) 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 Usually people push it, they're very mindful. Uh It was kind of a mess. Yes, kind of a mess. Uh Yeah, no. I wouldn't take it as a sign of (laughs) (laughs) anything particular. (sighs) It can seem like this very sensitive, vulnerable space gets burst, the bubble bursts very quickly. So That's really an indication of how, how sensitive we have become and how much it is important to just take it easy and not try to be too speedy, too active all at once. Be gentle with yourselves as you leave. Lucinda? I found it was enough to feel my intentions for the people instead of feeling like I had to verbalize it all. Good. Yes. Lovely. Anything you can do in the next few days, particularly to stay connected through... Reflection on intentions, through taking walks in nature, through sitting, through reading. Very, very valuable. Volumes of Buddhist thought, you know, in the next week, that wouldn't serve you very well. Read a little bit and sit. Right. What
0: is the title
1: of the book that she's been reading
0: from? Oh, Tofu Roshi. <coughs> the Life and Letters of Tofu Roshi by Susan by Moon. Moon. Shambhana. In a few days' time, we have uh, beginning another retreat here on Wednesday, in which there are 50 miniature yogis coming to, as well as 50 grown-up ones. It's very nice to see children in the hall, sitting weeks <laughs> right so we would like to have a loving-kindness meditation for those of you who haven't done a retreat before I will do my usual thing of talk you, hopefully, will do your usual thing of listen. We will reflect a little on loving-kindness. Just please find a posture that's comfortable for you. Consciously, just settling into your body and into this moment, being aware of the stillness and the silence of your body, being aware of the shared stillness and silence. Just being clearly present in this moment. Aware of your breath moving in your body. Aware of the life of your body expressing itself, different changes in each moment. to reflect just for a moment a sense of gratitude, aware of all the effort and the time and the work that all of those on staff have contributed to enable us to be here together. the work of the countless retreatants who have been here before us, creating this space for us to come to, just as we have contributed to that process. And extending to that sense of gratitude to the person on either side of you, To each person in the room, a thankfulness for their silence, their support, their presence, Reflecting for a moment too on the quality of forgiveness. But at times we have, may have harbored thoughts of anger, resentment, irritation with others. Just to let that go, to let them be. To extend inwardly that generosity of heart to ourselves, that openness of heart that can simply be present with what is, without prejudice. And just being aware of the sensation of your breath in the area of your heart. allowing your body and mind to relax, to open, to be present within, with each other in this moment. And cultivating a sense of loving-kindness, a friendliness, an inner warmth. I'm extending that friendliness and care inwardly. appreciating our capacity to experience fear and pain and grief, aware that at times we do and say things we regret, appreciating, too, our capacity to experience compassion and joy and loving-kindness, that we also give and share And in extending that warmth and care inwardly, just silently to oneself, being able to say wholeheartedly, may I be free from conflict. May I be free from fear. May I be free from alienation. May I live with love, May I live with generosity of heart. May I live with wisdom. May I live with compassion. And extending that same warmth, friendliness, and loving-kindness to each person in the room, to each person in the building. Appreciating their capacity and their experience of pain, conflict, and fear. And honoring their commitment And inspiration to live spirit, freedom, and love. (coughs) And consciously extending that loving kindness to each person in this building. May you be free from conflict. May you be free from suffering. May you be free from pain. May you live in peace. May you know love in your lives. May you live with compassion. springing into our hearts an awareness of all those in our world who at this moment may be experiencing loneliness alienation and fear those who are old and alone those who are in institutions Prisons, mental hospitals, those who just fear life and love, may they find peace in their hearts. May they find love in their lives. May they be touched by the power of loving kindness. May they be free from fear. May they be free from despair. May they be free from suffering. to bring into our hearts an awareness of all those in our world who at this moment are victims of violence, of terror, of war, who live with fear and oppression. May they find freedom from pain. May they find freedom from terror. May they find peace in their lives. May they find love in their hearts. May they be healed by the power of loving-kindness. To bring into our hearts to an awareness those who may live with anger and rage and hatred. May they find peace in their hearts. May they know the wisdom to turn away hatred and violence. May they be touched by the power of loving-kindness. May all beings everywhere, beneath the ground, above the ground, (coughs) upon the earth, be free from suffering, be free from conflict, be free from fear. May all beings be free from hatred, from alienation, from resentment. May all beings live with love. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with compassion. May all beings be at peace within themselves. May all beings live in peace with one another. May all beings live in peace.